So we're going to return to Kingdom Warfare, uh, King, the Kingdom of God series, and at the moment we're looking at strategies for Kingdom Advance. And uh, we've, we started the Kingdom series by looking at Kingdom Warfare. So we've looked at Matthew chapter 1 to chapter 4, the alternative version of the Christmas story, which still has disturbed some people. When you look at it from a warfare point of view, but it's an important place to start because the Bible shows us throughout that kingdom advance is continually through opposition. There's always opposition to kingdom advance. And if you don't realize that, if you don't know that, It's a bit of a shock being a Christian because when things go wrong and there's opposition, you start to think God doesn't love me, God doesn't care, something's gone wrong, I've sinned or something. No, this is the world in which we live in. And I wanted to encourage you that this is normal Christian life to build spiritual muscle uh, amongst us as a community of people. And if we look at Jesus' life story, you can see there's all kinds of opposition. Already he's encountered opposition. There's spiritual opposition. We looked at the temptations of Christ, how there was a, a satanic opposition there to his, his message. And also Jesus had opposition that was physical, so very real, very tangible. He was hungry and he was thirsty. So very physical opposition. And as we go forward from here, as Jesus begins his public ministry, we can see that the opposition is increasingly religious and political. So what we're looking at is the strategy. What was Jesus' strategy How does he advance the kingdom even in the face of opposition? And what can we learn from it? And so last time I looked at the first part of his strategy, which was in Matthew 4, verses 12 to 17, and saw how important good positioning was. Jesus didn't get baptized and then rush immediately into public ministry. He was conscious uh, that kingdom advance is all about being in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing. Jesus was very clear about good positioning. So this week, I want to look at the rest of the chapter and the next two parts of Jesus' strategy, which is gathering. He gathered a group of like-minded people in verses 18 to 22, and then finally see the strategy that he uses as he comes to public ministry, verses 23 to 25. Can we just pray? Because I'd like to just pray that this message really gets through. This is a really important message for us to hear as a church today. So Lord, I just pray your anointing would just be all over us and all over this message. Would you anoint my words? And I pray, Lord, that your words would be like an arrow that reach our hearts. We pray for transformation. We pray for encounter uh, with you and with your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, can we just read then Matthew chapter 4? We're going to look first of all at gathering. Um, Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 to 22. So it says this in verse 17, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And Jesus was walking beside the Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And going from there, he saw two other brothers, 
James the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them too. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Gathering, gathering, gathering a team, gathering a group of like-minded people. Just a bit of context and timing here, just to explain. Verse 17 says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Actually, Jesus is talking there about, the, uh, the passage is talking there about Jesus' return from Galilee, which, as we saw last time, took place about a year after the temptations. And that was a gap that Matthew didn't actually record. There's no gap between chapter 3 and chapter 4, but John does. Helpfully, he sets it out what went on during that year. And so when Jesus walks along the beach one day and tells his apparently random group of fishermen to leave their nets and follow him, he's not a complete stranger to them with a strange message about catching people with catching people instead of fish. I used to think sort of growing up that Jesus just had this aura about him and he just walked along the beach one day and said, follow me. And they just couldn't help it. They were just, yes, I will, I will. And that there's no relationship. It's purely supernatural. But that's not the case. Jesus had already spent a year with these guys. He'd spent a year just hanging out with them, living in and around the Judean countryside, apparently. And what they did, we don't really know what they did. They didn't do a lot. They did a lot of hanging around, uh, spending time together. In fact, the only clue that we get of any kind of ministry is that it says that Jesus' disciples were baptizing more people than John. So there was some baptism going on, but that was very much in line with the ministry of John the Baptist. It was kind of an add-on, very much the same message as John the Baptist. So I just wanted you to see that command, follow me, it comes to men who know exactly what this is about. They know exactly what Jesus is about. They've been waiting for this moment. There are no questions. There are no dilemmas. There's no drama. So they immediately leave their nets and they follow him. And Jesus had brought this group of men together over a year. He'd built relationship with them. He'd given them a sense of their direction and purpose and an idea of what their mission together would be. And you know, as I looked at this part of Jesus' strategy... I realise that this is probably a lot of what's been going on for us as well as a church. Over the last few years, we, we've not been too quick to rush into starting lots of projects, lots of ministries, lots of things like that. We've actually taken our time over it. We've been building relationship. We've been building that sense of community. We've been gathering around a vision, building a family on a foundation of good relationships. We've been talking about purpose. And Jesus did the same. He gathered them over that period of time, building relationship, getting them clear on their mission and the vision. And then he says, come on, now we're going to go and fish for people. And we thought, what on earth are you talking about? Fishing for people sounds really weird. But it was a shorthand. It was like their mission statement. Okay, guys, you know it. You've been waiting for this. Now it's time to go and fish for people. And you can just imagine that Jesus has been using the fact that they're fishermen to illustrate what it means to gather in people into the kingdom. And later on he will tell stories about that, the dragnet going down. So you can see that the teaching has already been going on during that time. But I think that's kind of where we're up to at the moment as a church. You know, even last time I spoke on this passage, there came that challenge to know that we're in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing, that we are positioned. 
that we have been positioned by God for what he's bringing us into. And there's been a a kind of gathering of a group of like-minded people on a mission together. I, I wonder if you see that. I wonder if you feel that and sense that. A coming together, that unifying of hearts. And Jesus took a year, and we've taken a bit longer, but that's where I think we are. And the gathering continues, by the way. <laughs> There's more people coming. There's more people excited about what God is doing here and are starting to join us. Other like-minded people that God is sending to help us in our mission. And every time somebody walks through the door, I'm excited thinking, I've been praying for this kind of person. I wonder if that's them. <laughs> Remember when Tom and Kate first turned up at one of our meetings. There's Tom here. And I said, Lord, would you send me a worship leader? And he sent me Tom. I said, Lord, would you... And then I realized it was Tom. (laughs) And Tom is amazing, isn't he? What a blessing. And how God had spoken to them about joining us. Just at the time we've been praying about it. Like-minded people that God is sending to help us in our mission. I like that line about James and John in verse 21 there, where it says that they were in their boat preparing their nets. It's just a picture. I mean, I can't actually get this out of the passage, strictly speaking, but it's just a picture. Setting their nets, preparing their nets. They were getting ready to go. They were waiting for the command, the word to let down their nets for a different purpose. And I feel that we're poised in a similar position. I talked about tipping points last time. There are some tipping points for us. There's some opportunities coming, some decisions to be made about the next part of our strategy. Is this the place where we let down some of those nets that we've been preparing? Is this the time to start that particular project we've been thinking about? You know, who's going to lead that? How is this going to happen? That's where we're at at the moment. And just as a kind of aside, I just think it's amazing that Jesus took a year over this. He only had three years of ministry. He spent a year of that just hanging out with his disciples. Have you you thought about that? You know, if I'd only got three years to live, I don't know if I would have the same kind of priorities. We we live in such an impatient world where we've got to make things happen. Jesus takes a year in the countryside with his disciples. I love that. And I want us to have that sense of rest and peace and pace as we build church. Knowing the timings of God, following after the Spirit. I want that to be a characteristic of who we are as a church. What are you doing? Well, we're kind of just hanging around in God's presence right now. We did that a bit in the worship this morning, didn't we? We just kind of hung out with God. So much stress in the world. I'm so glad that Jesus isn't in such a hurry. But Jesus' primary objective here was to build a team. I mean, think about that. Jesus wants a team. I mean, Jesus doesn't need a team. If anybody needs a team, it's not Jesus. He is a team. He's a team all by himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So why? Why is he spending this time with these men? I've just been thinking, well, perhaps this is intentional. Well, I know it is. It's intentional that he starts that way with his disciples. 
And I think it's because of this that team is a reflection of what is going on in heaven. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together, and he just simply brings that to earth, and he says, right, this is how it is. This is how the kingdom works. No one man bounds one man ministries. I'm building a body of interdependence, a body of people. It's not all about the man of power for the hour. It's about a group of people invested in the kingdom and understanding the mission and the calling of God. That's what we're about. We're trying to build that team. It's a reflection of what's going on already in heaven. Amen. So Jesus was very careful to start in that place. He was very careful to gather this group of men. And he was very careful to make sure that that... The, the relationships were there, the unity was there, the, the sense of purpose and vision was there before he introduced them to the next part of his strategy, which was when he actually started his public ministry. So we've seen this positioning, this gathering, now we see his public ministry. Just read the next uh, verse in the chapter here, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. It says here that Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness amongst the people. Three things that were his strategy. This strategy he introduces, it's his primary strategy for kingdom advance. And for those that like to just get on and do stuff, well, here it is. This is his most productive strategy. This is how things actually happen. And it's a strategy which now reoccurs throughout the book of Matthew. Every time, it's just a pattern that goes through the whole book. There's teaching, and then there is demonstration. Something actually happens. And uh, every church has a version of this strategy, to greater or lesser effect. You know, every church I know has a slot for preaching and teaching. Uh, there are these three parts. Jesus teaches, he speaks to the minds, he preaches, he announces to the heart, and he heals people. There are demonstrations of power. These three things. And every church has a version of that. And I just want to go through each of those three things now. And you may notice I'm sort of going around a bit. I'm actually quite nervous about this part of the talk. Okay, so this is going to be challenging. This has really challenged me, and before I've shared it, I've shared it with the rest of the team because I wanted them to be similarly uncomfortable. <laughs> it's quite funny, actually. We, I shared it with them, and then I said, right, let's pray. And everybody was wordless. <laughs> but let's get, go through this. First of all, I want to look at teaching. Just to set it out for you. Teaching speaks to the mind. It helps people to make sense of the world and it builds a framework for understanding. And teaching is primarily about the head, whereas preaching is about the heart, just so that we've got our definitions clear. And Jesus' teaching was primarily about the kingdom. In fact, the first three Gospels, he mentions the kingdom over a hundred times. And the rest of his teaching reveals principles about the kingdom, even if the word itself isn't used. And in fact, Jesus talks about the kingdom more than any other subject. And his teaching continually confronted people's thinking, especially the religious people who thought they had all their doctrines tied up with string. 
It was constant confrontation. I mean, remember Jesus' primary message, we've just quoted it here, repent, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Meaning, change the way that you think. (laughs) You need to change the way that you think. Thinking must be challenged if we're ever going to make sense of the kingdom, or especially if we're ever going to experience the kingdom. It's not just about thinking, it's also about experience. And you see, teaching for Jesus was never just about having a good intellectual understanding of the Bible. If you think about it, the Pharisees knew the Bible better than anyone, and Jesus wasn't very impressed by them. Because you see, teaching for Jesus was about access. That means being intellectually convinced of what was experientially possible here on earth now. Access. Heaven coming to earth. His kingdom come. His will be done. Intellectualize that, people. Heaven on earth. His teaching prepared the mind for what was incomprehensible to the human mind. It was beyond understanding. It exceeded all expectation. How many people got it? Until the Spirit came, even his disciples were struggling with it. To get it, Jesus says, when he talks to one man, he says, you're just going to have to get born all over again. You're never going to get it in that birthday suit. You're going to have to get born again. You're going to have to get born again so you can see things from a completely different world. You need to come from another world to get this. What kind of teaching is that? He was talking to a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. And like I said, all churches have a version of this. But I think what teaching has often come to mean is I've got good theology. Or I can do a good sermon. That's teaching. But for Jesus, teaching was never just about the sermon. It was about confronting the mind so that we could receive the kingdom. That's teaching. Let's look at preaching. You see, whereas teaching is about the mind, preaching speaks to the heart. Preaching interrogates the motives and intents of the heart. Teaching must lead to a change of mind, whereas preaching must bring about a change of heart. Change from the inside out. I change at heart level. It's not just emotions. Although preaching can get to the emotions, and we can get very emotional sometimes when people preach and we get stirred up. And preaching can and will affect the emotions, but that won't change anything ultimately. Your emotions can get changed, but nothing, your emotions can get affected, but nothing will actually change the heart just purely through emotion. It's got to go deeper than that. Preaching has got to get to our convictions. It's got to get so that we reorientate our lives to line up with the message that's being proclaimed. That's quite a tall order, isn't it? I told you I was nervous about this. I mean, the word preach in the New Testament has the sense of a royal herald announcing news on behalf of the king. Or perhaps even the town crier. 
shouting out, an official representative shouting out, oh yay, oh yay, here's some very important news, and everybody would stop and listen. I don't remember it myself, but I've I've read about this in books. (laughs) Perhaps the news is this, God is here. God is here! His kingdom is here! He loves you! Preaching, proclamation, shouted out from a legal, official, authoritative proclamation. He's here, and he's for you. And you know, biblical preaching is about making bold declarations of the goodness of God and his kingdom. Declaring what is not as if it were. (laughs) And so that what is in heaven is now released on earth. It's preached, it's proclaimed, and it comes from heaven to earth. You see, preaching isn't just about that part of the meeting where we do the sermon. It's a series of powerful proclamations about God and what he's like or what he's doing. So often, you see, Jesus, he preached. He proclaimed healing. He preached deliverance. He proclaimed it and it happened. That which was in heaven came to earth and it happened through preaching. You know, in the church here, We will often make proclamations over one another, but perhaps you don't realise that that's preaching. We make proclamations over one another. For example, we'll often say, you know, God's here, his presence is here right now, engage with him. That's a proclamation. You know, the Father's love is amongst us this morning. That's what we were experiencing. He's here. He's here to love you. Do you feel loved, Jubilee, Steve asked. It's a proclamation. It's preaching, it's declaring over us the goodness of God and what is in heaven. You make declarations over yourself. Do you know you preach to yourself? I hope it's positive. I hope what you say to yourself is from the kingdom of God. When you look yourself in the eye, in the mirror, what do you say to yourself? You are a handsome devil. (laughs) No, I never say that. Uh, But you're loved by God. You are awesome. God loves you. He died for you. Can you say that? Can you look yourself in the eye and say that? Can you declare those things over yourself? How often do you say, you miserable, filthy sinner? can't even look myself in the eye. My my prayers are so powerful and effective. That's what the Bible says. The words that you speak have life and are incredibly powerful. Using your tongue, you direct the course of your life. That's what James tells us. It's like a rudder in the mouth. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you declare over yourself and over others. So teaching and preaching were the foundations of Jesus' strategy. And as I said, this pattern can be seen throughout Jesus' ministry. And as I said, every church has some part or parts of this strategy to greater or lesser effect. And I say this because 
For Jesus, it was never just preaching and teaching. It was never just preaching and teaching. It was always followed by demonstrations of what he said. Read Matthew uh, chapter 4 again, verses 23 to 25 with me. It says in verse 23 that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness among the people. And healing every disease and illness among the people. And so news about him understandably spread. Everybody was getting healed. Lives were getting changed. News about him spread all over Syria. Don't we need that to happen today? Doesn't Syria need that? (laughs) And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralysed, and he preached at them and taught them a really good sermon. And they went away much disappointed. <laughs> no, it says that he healed them all. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This talk gets progressively challenging. We now get to talk about demonstrations of power. Because here's the strategy that Jesus laid out, teaching, preaching, demonstrations of power. Teaching, preaching, tell. Demonstrations of power, show. Show and tell. Tell and show. Sometimes you need to switch it around. Sometimes people come in, I notice this, in our, in our society today where our society has been spiritualized that often we ha- they have a spiritual encounter and we need to explain it to them afterwards. For other people, particularly if you've been churched, it needs to be the other way around. We have the theology first and then we have to teach you how to actually encounter the kingdom. Is that mischievous? It's true. Jesus never just taught He never just preached. Sometimes he just demonstrated. But he never preached or teached without a demonstration of power. At least I can't find it anywhere. And that's because in Jesus' mind, as was also clear from what Paul would later say, the demonstrations of power were not merely entertainment, but were given to authenticate the message that was being brought. This is what God said to me over Christmas. I, I, I just got really challenged by this. And when he said it to me, it shook me to the core because I realized it was true. Here it is. Teaching without demonstration is just religion. It's a set of rules and principles for moral behavior, but it lacks any power. I'll say that again. Teaching without demonstration is just religion a set of rules and principles for moral behavior, but it lacks any power. 
preaching without demonstration is mere aspiration. Vain hopes of what might be, what we would like them to be, or what should be, but nothing really changes. It's challenging, isn't it? I've been really challenged about this, uncomfortable with it. And it's led me to be compelled to pray out of a sense of desperation that God would come. Last week I talked about thirsting for God. That's where it was coming from. I'm desperate. I'm desperate for God. I'm desperate for him to turn up in power to authenticate his word. I'm not saying he isn't. I'm not sort of having a go at us. We've got some fantastic testimonies amongst us, but there's so much more. There's so much more. We're not seeing some of the things that we know are written in the Bible in our community at the moment. But I want it. As I was thinking about this, uh, I had my mum and dad with us for Christmas. We had such a lovely time. Um, and I got out a book for my dad because my dad is Welsh. And so he loves reading stuff about the Welsh revival. And I've come across this book, a pictorial version, lots of photographs. I thought you might recognise some of the people. He was a bit offended by that thought. (laughs) But he actually did recognise some of them, which actually is more telling. Um, But he's Welsh and he loves this kind of thing. And after he'd sort of looked through it and got all Welsh and weepy-eyed, boyo, I read this line just about how it all started. And it all started because a group of like-minded people, particularly ministers, very much in the traditional sort of church setting, became increasingly concerned about their lack of spiritual power. And when I read that line, it hit me right there. I thought, that's what I'm feeling. That's what that thirst is. That's what that longing is. Are we seeing any power is the question I'm asking. And we are. (laughs) I'm not saying we're not. But are we seeing any power beyond what we're seeing? (laughs) I'm trying to be balanced here. (laughs) I've written this out so many times. Are we seeing any power? Are we seeing the dead raised? Anybody? The blind seeing. The deaf, we are seeing a bit of that. Lives transformed, we're seeing that. But we seeing any power? Steve was just saying, he says, do you know what I'm really pressing in for? Is what P- Paul says when he wrote about prophecy. He says that people will come in from outside, they will fall down on their faces and say, God is really amongst you because he has revealed the secrets of my heart. Has that happened to you recently? You know, there are some many churches with good teaching, and churches are even known for it, actually. That's a good teaching church. There are other churches that are really known for their preaching. Oh, that's fantastic preaching. Oh, in tears every week. It's just amazing. And there are other churches that are known for their worship. The worship there, oh, I feel like I'm in heaven. 
But how many are really known for their power? What is our distinctive feature? Actually, know, I want it to be that God is with us. I want to be that the awe of God is with us. And when we come together, there's just a sense of awe. His presence is manifest so powerfully. Do you know, I think um, a lot of this is to do with what we're prepared. This is, I've been interrogating my heart. And I think it's a lot to do with what we're prepared to settle for. You know, I reckon it's more likely that there are people in church who will complain that the sermon wasn't up to much. The teaching's no good. The music's too loud. The coffee's not served quickly enough. Now, for the room's too cold. Then there was no demonstration of power this morning. What happened? Are we concerned about that? How far should I take this? I asked my leadership team, they looked at me blankly. So I will quote somebody else because it's safer. Rambabu said this, am I bold enough to say this? No, am I bold enough? This is Rambabu's words, I'm all right with him saying it. (laughs) Rambabu is an evangelist in India and he came to Birmingham a few years ago and he shocked the life out of me by saying this very boldly and courageously. He says, if people are not healed tonight, if demons do not flee, then you can completely ignore everything I say because I'm a liar. And then he said, on the other hand, if people are healed tonight, if demons flee, if the power of God is manifest, then you better fear God and put right with him. Is it any wonder that that man is seeing so many people saved and healed and delivered, lives changed? He won't settle for anything less than that. Reinhard Bonnke is the same. He will say very similar things. Tonight you will see miracles. It's not some kind of vain, pumped-up thing. They see miracles. God comes. See, if we have no power no demonstration, no tangible displays of God's glory, then what does that say about our message? If people are not healed, if lives are not changed, if demons are not fleeing, if there is no power and we are, we're no different to the Women's Institute a couple of doors down. Really? Or any other community group? And do you know, this wasn't just Jesus' strategy, but that of his disciples and Paul too. I'm just going to read you a load of verses now. Look what he writes. Paul is very clearly following the same strategy that Jesus laid down for kingdom advance. 2 Corinthians 2.4, he says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Romans 15, verses 18 to 19. This is the New Living Translation because it's really helpful for this particular theme. Verses 18 to 9. Yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God. Not by my message and by the way I worked among them. They were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. In this way, I have fully presented the gospel of Christ. 
1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony among God, about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with stuttering, with great fear and with trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom. It wouldn't rest on me, but it's on his power. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 20 says, just a throwaway comment, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Are you feeling uncomfortable yet? You know, it's easy to settle for a good sermon that makes us feel happy. Or teaching which adds to our education. You know, our worship, especially with some of the machines we have now, can create great atmospheres. And as we get bigger, I'm sure it will get even better. But there is an inescapable pattern that I read in the pages of the Bible that troubles me greatly. Preaching, teaching, demonstrations of power. Preaching, teaching, demonstrations of power. Preaching, teaching, demonstrations of power. Say it with me. Preaching, teaching, demonstrations of power. And I don't want to settle for anything less, but I can't do anything about it. I can do what I can do. We need to press into God. So God, we need you. We are so thirsty for you. We are so desperate for you. If you don't come, it's got to be the cry of our hearts. We need him to come. We mustn't be satisfied for any less. We need his manifest presence. We must ask and not become complacent. They say that... um, there's a book I read recently called The Battle for the Radical Middle, and it talks about the, tra- the, life, the life cycle of a church, that when you're young and you're starting and it's new, it's all exciting, it's all very spontaneous, and more happens. As you grow, you become more established. As you become more uh, used to church, the life goes out because systems are needed. Do you know that frightens me? We must have his manifest presence. So in gathering a group of like-minded people, what do we want? What are we hungry and thirsty for? Can you feel the ache that I'm feeling right now? I'm kind of laboring it because I can't move on from this. There's just such an ache in my heart. A desperation. I'm going to leave it there. I'm just going to just going to finish it there. All right.
But we're going to keep coming back to this. Next month, we're going to be looking at something I've been hinting at for a while, which is kingdom culture. We're going to be looking at the kingdom culture of our church. And I believe that this is going to interrogate some of those desires and those longings and our understanding about what it is to be a kingdom-focused people.